1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull working somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I do want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sometimes the glass is half full. Sometimes it's half empty. But I'm going to introduce you to a whole new category tonight, a third category. Sometimes the glass itself shrinks, making a half full vessel look like it's overflowing. And you know what? This is where we are right now in this. After today's session, Dow closed uh, flat. S&P inched up 0.16%, Nasdaq advanced 0.26%. I'm going to give you some examples. Let's start with the old thing that we all know, which is the half full, half empty. Uh, Walt Disney this morning, Disney launched its new streaming service, Disney+. Plus. Almost immediately, the site was overwhelmed with traffic and started having outages. Even though management had just assured us that the technology was solid on the conference call last week. Remember, we were told they tested the system in the Netherlands, which must be like a new worldwide Peoria. Although the pilot program reminded me a lot more of Amsterdam from The Wire when I first heard it. In a glass-half-empty situation, well, we decide that Disney must be run by a bunch of technological lightweights who botched the rollout of a promising new service. However, the glass-half-full people think very differently. Did that miss a high-quality problem? Sure, the site crashed, but that's probably because there was so much demand, so much traffic. Disney vetted this platform for millions of people, and apparently even that wasn't enough. It's not hard to believe their streaming service has so much great content that it must have caused a stampede of subscribers. Now, in reality, I think both of these camps are right. Well, Disney obviously dropped the ball. They also feel like victims of their own success. This isn't a question of who's right. What matters is which contingent is calling the shots here. Who's got the most firepower? How many divisions do they have? And given that the stock rally nearly two bucks today, it's clear that the glass half-full folks have the most divisions. This situation is normal, but now I'm going to introduce this, uh, there's always a half-full, half-empty camp. Well, what does it look like when you add this third camp in? All right, get this. We're seeing this more complicated dynamic when it comes to the trade war. Today, President Trump said we would be close, very close to a deal with China when he spoke at the Economic Club of New York. The president explained that the Chinese are, quote, dying to make a deal. We're close! But then Trump seemed to torpedo his own positives by saying he'll raise tariffs substantially if there's no deal. Personally, I thought the latter statement was more important when you consider how high this market is. I doubt it can absorb much higher tariffs. But if the Chinese really are eager to make a deal, well, that would give the averages a major boost. Now, the glass half-empty contingent only hears that the December tariff hikes might be in play and the hardliners are ready to jack up the pain. It's almost as though the trade hawks in the White House believe that doves, like Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, and Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, were undermining the president's case when they said there could be a deal last week. The glass half full crowd focuses on the first part of the statement. President Trump's not ruling out a deal. He said, we're close, so they see no reason to get discouraged. But then there's this third category. It's the glass totally full camp, They saw Larry Kudlow standing at the president's side. And they say, wow, the president respects Larry to the point of repeatedly referring to him at this luncheon. And it makes them think a deal might be imminent. When Larry spoke to CNBC later in the afternoon, he talked about how there could be some real agreement going on, especially with the Chinese government, allowing our financial firms to own entities within China. He made it sound like just a matter of time before we get a deal. The market rallied when Trump said we're close to a deal. When it went back down, when we heard that the tariffs might be boosted, it, it looked like it was going to go really, really low. But then it bounced again once the glass is totally full crowd started chiming in. I think the optimism of this group is almost unhinged. But clearly, plenty of money managers believe that this is not nearly as good as this. Let me give you another example. Rockwell Automation. Just a second. This is a really important, cute uh, card that is, shows you exactly what kind of community uh, crosstalk show we got going here. Um, automation. Rockwell Automation. Here's a metal bending company. One of the best there is. Rockwell is deeply cyclical, meaning its earnings are, ha- are hostage to the strength or weakness of the economy. This leans and arrows. We've been told over and over again that cyclicals are on their last legs, right? Because they're going to report weaker numbers than last year, thanks to the softness in the industrial economy. Well, apparently Rockwell Automation missed the memo. The company just reported a spectacular quarter, 1.4% organic growth, including real strength, and some key end markets, oil and gas, mining, life sciences, cybersecurity, autos, food and beverage. And that's why the stock pulled at $18, 10%. Now, let's mull this one over. A glass half empty investor thinks, are you kidding me? What is 1.4% growth? <laughs> Pretty good. That's anemic, it's pathetic. Rockwell's going more slowly than the American gross domestic product. How's that good? Oh, glass half full guy says, hmm, that's not so bad for a cyclical. In fact, it's a lot better than I feared. Now, nah, remember, not as bad as feared. Now, nah, but how about the delusional glass is totally full guy? Okay. He looks at this and he goes, Mmm, holy cow. Rockwell's much better than I thought. I didn't know it had life sciences or cybersecurity or food and beverage exposure. Maybe it's less a me. thought Let's buy some stock. Next, this morning, Tyson Foods. Ugly earnings. Miss Everything. Processed food. Chicken. Beef. Seemed weaker than expected. The only thing that wasn't weaker than expected, I I kept waiting to see those pea-based chicken uh, tenders that they sent me. Uh, They weren't included. The stock looked like it would be down 5% as investors seemed to tire of the company's inconsistent track record. Oh, that's a half-empty attitude, right? Then once the conference call got going, management started telling a more encouraging story, giving you a sense that this too shall pass. Stock ended up recovering all its losses to the point where it was flat. Next thing you know, despite the severe short, shortfall, Tyson's saying you get some high single-digit growth going in the future. Not to tell you, as recently as the beginning of September, this stock would have been poleaxed on this kind of quarter. Even the glass half-full contingent would have had a hard time trusting these guys after such a serious shortfall. But this market is now dominated by the tiny cup crowd, the people who think the glass is really full because they have the wrong frame of reference. So, the same news only sent Tyson's stock surging up 7.4%. Uh, full glass. What else? Facebook launches Facebook Pay. Who the heck trusts Facebook these days? A month ago, the stock would have been pummeled on this news because the glass half-empty contingent was in control. Today, it rallied five bucks. Glass full. Finally, Abby's taking down $30 billion in debt to acquire the hapless Allergan. Is that bad news? I mean, I, well, it turns out there's demand for... $44 billion in debt, and the stock ends up rallying. I mean, it makes me feel like, you know what? The, the glass is full and then some! Mm. Bottom line, my mom hates it when I talk about a mouthful. She hasn't been with us for 34 years, but I still remember it. Um, bottom line is that I can go on and on with these examples. So how long can this glass
2: totally...
1: Oh my God we edit that out in post-production. Um, like, this show is post-production. I mean, we, look at this. Look at what we have here. I mean, aren't these great? All okay. right. I think that as long as the interest rates stay low, I'm a serious guy. This sense of optimism can sustain itself until we get some bad news on the China front. Of course, if there's a major trade deal, the glass is f- full crew. That will turn out to be right. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be too bullish unless some fresh money comes in from somewhere to take us higher regardless. Whose brilliant idea was this? (laughs) Jim Jim in New York. Jim! Jim, hey. Listen, Jim, I'm calling about investment in my kids' trust accounts. Okay. And I have a long-view investor mentality when it comes to that. Okay. So we're sitting on 80% short-term gains. Short-term on XPO Logistics at $85. That's still $30 below its 13-month high. And I don't know what it is, whether it's... Trade news, expectations, fundamentals. But these accounts belong to youngsters still years in college. And an unrealized gain makes well, it Look, I, uh, want you, uh, I want you to cut it in half. Now, why? I think Brad Jacobs is terrific. I like XPL, But it was rated down. Shorts hammered this thing and hammered this thing and hammered this thing. Now, the shorts will say, well, Jim, that's because it belonged to me there. But I think Brad is a good man. The stock is up a lot. But now it sells at 22 times earnings. And that's too expensive versus the rest of the group. Charles in Maryland. Charles. Mr. Kramer, how are you today, sir? Hopefully, Charles, is this, is one, this is one banner day. It started at uh, 315. It just keeps rolling. What's up? Oh, that's not bad. That's
3: not bad. Mine started at 445. So,
1: the what you, Early bird What's gets warm, warm, chief. That's right. I'm trying to get one myself. All oh, right. Listen, I wanted to ask you about Iron Mountain. And I was looking at the dividend on that. Dividend yield 7.5%. I thought that was a cautionary tale. But it seems that they do well the digitalization of uh, documentation and storage. So, what uh, is opinion on them? It seems like it's but you give me your
2: uh, ideas. Well, to Charles, I'm with
1: it. you. I mean, I wish they would come on. I have liked this stock because of the yield, but the stock doesn't go up. And in the end, I prefer growth and yield, not just yield. But you and I are in the same mind. It does seem like a bit of a red flag. We've got to find out where's my red flag. Oh, well, let's just dip everything in these. Okay, I, I think the optimism can last. But I think it may be a little too bullish, which therefore makes me throw the red flag. Oh, man, Money tonight, with news that Facebook is introducing a payments feature, how is PayPal positioning itself I've got the CFO? Then a CNBC investigator reports and shares of the real, real, reeling, that one is two E's, last week. Tonight, the CEO responds to reporting the fake items... Are being sold on the site. And Micron stock has been ball over the past year's drama with DRAMs impacts the stock. I'm going to sit down with the CEO of this incredibly wild trader that I know so many who care a great deal about. So stay with Kramer.
0: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at
2: Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com
0: or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com markethub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter.
1: I always tell you that Wall Street's kind of like a fashion show, because at any given moment, what's in or out of style is more important than what's actually good. Like I said at the top of the show over the past few months, the cyclicals have caught fire. Companies do much better in expanding the economy, like that Rockwell automation, with the banks leading the way. And when the banks are in style, the fast-growing financial technology stocks tend to go out of style, as portfolio managers can only have so much exposure to one sector if they want to stay diversified. Which brings me to PayPal. The huge digital payment platform has been a fabulous long term performer, but its stock did peak at 121 over the summer. And for months, it's been, by late October, it was trading at 96. That's when PayPal reported a spectacularly better than expected quarter, sending its stock up to 107 over the next couple of days. But since then, though, PayPal's quickly given back a big chunk of that move, drifting down to 102. Even though we know business is great, Wall Street doesn't seem to care right now. So what will it take to get the stock moving again? Hey, let's take a closer look with John Rainey. He's PayPal's CFO and Executive Vice President of Global Customer Operations to get a better sense of where his company's headed, what they're doing, and, of course, because it is Veterans Month, what they are doing to help veterans. Mr. Rainey, welcome back to Mid Money.
2: Hey, Jim, it's great to be on the show. Let me thank you for what you're doing by devoting time on your show to recognize veterans.
1: Well, you know what, John? I was speaking with my friends Carl and David this morning in Squawk, and I said one of the things they're so proud about PayPal, they recognize it can't be a day. We can't have this Veterans Day. And then the next day be, okay, that was that. See you next November 11th. You've developed a Veterans Recognition Month, which to me has a lot more continuity, and I need (laughs) you to explain it to others because they should adopt your method.
2: Sure, sure. So we have at uh, at PayPal, as part of our diversity and inclusion initiatives, we have several employee resource groups. And one of those is something that we call Serve, which is devoted to supporting our veterans. And our serve group for the entire month of November is honoring our veterans through a number of different different initiatives. But one of them is through the sale of poppies, which, uh, as you know, is uh, the red flower that is recognized internationally as a symbol of the sacrifice of our veterans. The proceeds from those sales this month will go to support our veterans and their families in need.
1: I think that's great. You know, for those of us who have been to Britain during this period know that the poppy represents Flanders Field and how many millions of people have killed World War I, not forgotten in Britain. I think we should do just like them. Let me ask you something. How did you design your program? Because one of the things that I have found when I talk to veterans, and I do quite a bit of it, is they are a little bit lost in the business world. Why? Because they are so self-sacrificed that they only think of we. Yet, yet when I want to go get a job at PayPal, I have to talk about me, me, me. How do you get over that?
2: Well, we at PayPal are a better company, and we're actually a stronger workforce with veterans. Uh, our mindset is not that we're helping veterans by by hiring them, we actually believe that they're helping us by coming to workforce. When employers look at uh, the qualities that they want in, in candidates, uh, Military veterans have have honed some of those skills in their career. Things like teamwork and discipline, uh, leadership, and these are things that they can bring to the workforce and make us a a much better company.
1: Well, you know, John, I gotta ask you because you're, you guys are in some form or another in the news every day, and, and positive. Uh, today, Facebook announced an initiative. Hey, if they had announced it three months ago, we would have said, who are those guys? But they announced a kind of a Facebook pay initiative. My first thought was, wow, they're good partners with PayPal. This is going to hurt PayPal's business. My second thought was, wait a second, I got John Rainey on. Let's ask him.
2: Sure, sure. Well, Facebook has been a longstanding and valued partner for us and will continue to be. We partner with them in many aspects of, of their payments uh and we'll do that with the, with this new announcement as well. I think when you step back and you think about the competitive landscape, uh there are many people competing in this field, but but really the competition is still cash good right. old fashioned good old fashioned cash where eighty five percent of the world 's commerce is still taking place, and with with things like what we 're doing with Venmo and PayPal as well as many of these other initiatives, we can make the, the the movement and management of money a lot safer, simpler, and more secure
1: Now, they did it when you went to the Facebook page to look at the introduction. They did have an illustration that seemed remarkably like Venmo to me as if therefore you wouldn 't need Venmo. Uh, it, more competition the merrier, or is that just something that maybe you're going to have to start worrying about? Them?
2: Well, w- by having an open platform, we partner with a lot of companies. And if you think about the, the what Venmo is in terms of the payments landscape, it, it has a, a social feature where people are, are sharing their experiences on that. And, and I think very, very importantly is it's, it's something that that millennial demographic – is very attractive to. And so, you know, this is something that payments is is a pretty sticky business, and I think we'll continue to do so. So we're going to focus on continuing to create experiences for our customer base that allow them to use it in in, in ways that they can and ways that we can monetize it as well.
1: Okay. So John, this afternoon, Larry Kudlow, who's adjacent to the president today at the Economic Club, came on our air. And he said, you know what? The president is very constructive. He believes on Chinese trade talks, and even with the idea that some of our companies may be able to have an independent operation in China, some of our financials, isn't that what you have with the people's when the People's Bank of China? Let you buy seventy uh, percent interest in uh, in GoPay. You are already there.
2: Well, well, look. So you know, there's a lot of talk about China and some of the 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 trade noise that's out there and impact on our businesses and others. And so I think it's first helpful to understand that, you know, the average PayPal transaction is about $60. People aren't, uh, generally speaking, using PayPal to buy aluminum in bulk in China. <laughs> and so the, the the trade noise is really not something that impacts our business. But China, to your point, Jim, is a very, very important part of our business. You know, some estimates have China as being as much as 40 percent of all cross-border commerce by the year 2021. And if you look at our footprint today, we're relatively small in terms of the market share that we have in China. And so we're very excited that we're the first non-Chinese company to be granted a payments license to process payments online in China. And so we think it has the potential to be a pretty significant development for us over time. But
1: just speaking ge- geopolitically, John, I took it as a sign that maybe the Chinese are, it's an olive branch. I mean, they don't put out a sign that says, this is an olive branch. But the fact is, is they let PayPal in. But I also know that you and Dan Schulman have a different culture. And they like your culture because they like the way that you help, have always been invested with people who are not necessarily of means. So perhaps it is political or is they just think that it's time?
2: Well... I think it's easy to turn some of this into, you know, is this political or is it not? But the fact of the matter is, is it's actually good for Chinese consumers and merchants, and it's good for those that want to shop in China as well. You know, with our network of 300 million customers around the world and over 20 million merchants, we're now enabling commerce for Chinese consumers to go shop at that network of merchants and for consumers around the world to continue to shop at Chinese merchants. So I truly think as a win-win, but, but it is, I think, probably a, an important development in the overall relations, given that uh, we are the first non-Chinese company to be granted a license there.
1: Well, I'm thrilled that you came on the show to talk about everything from the, uh, the license in China to the Facebook relationship. But, yes, most important, Veterans Month, John Rainey, who is the CFO of PayPal. Always good to see you, sir.
2: Good to talk to you, Jim. May I will be back after the break.
0: This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps.
1: What the heck just happened to the stock of the Real Real? This company's the world's largest online consignment shop where you can buy and sell used luxury apparel and accessories. The Real Real had the misfortune of coming public in late June, right before the markets uh, sour on IPOs. Its stock tumbled from $30 at its peak on the first day of trading down to $12 and change in August. Ouch! Uh, the company has an intriguing concept, though. It's growing like a weed. So the stock started to bounce right back, climbing to $23 a couple of weeks ago. But then the Real Real had a rough week. Last Monday, they reported an excellent quarter. It's a nice revenue beat with a smaller than expected earnings loss, a nice uh, forecast b- uh, b- bump, too. At the other same time, though, the stock would have probably roared higher the next day. But right after the quarter's reported, a CNBC investigative piece said that not every item is authenticated by experts. And a number of people at the Real Real employed to handle this may not have the expertise to do the job. Now, in response, the stock fell more than 10% last Tuesday. It's still down more than 5% since the news broke. And that's why we would like to hear from Julie Wainwright. She's the founder, chairperson, CEO of The Real Real. To find out what is going on, Ms. Wainwright, welcome to Mad Money.
4: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on.
1: Okay, so Julie, let's, let's deal with some of these issues. Um, but there are some questions, and I know you even put out a note about about uh, to our customers and consigners about counterfeit, but some people say maybe there's not enough... Real unreal real.
4: How do we Oh do boy. That? So first of all, I'm you know, that was former disgruntled employees and I want to talk about what we do today because okay. it's really different. So let me give you some stats. Okay. All right, we've sold eleven point five million products. Our net promoter customer score is seventy. Eighty percent of our GMV is from repeat customers. Now put that aside, let me okay. tell you about what happened in October we processed 490,000 units. Mm-hmm. Our copywriter slash authenticator team removed 4,000 units before they ever got posted. Before it went... 4,000 units because they, they were, were not acceptable? They were counterfeits.
1: Okay, and they determined that a copywriter who may not, that's a person who is an authenticator at the same
4: time? Well, here's what we do. Look, when we first, when I first started the business, okay. copywriters only copywrote. Okay. And they went to th- authentication. Later on, we blended in the copywriter authentication. Okay. Each each copywriter authenticator gets thirty hours of training. Okay. They sit with other people. There's master authenticators. So yes, they plus the the expert, the high risk authenticators, mm-hmm. remove four thousand right away. Okay. So that's then, okay, that's then our QC team pulled another that's our quality, control, quality, control quality control team pulled another hundred and thirty-nine from the okay. site. So if you just look at what, that's what we do every day. Our brand is to keep fakes off the market.
1: But, now it, that's difficult. I mean, our CNBC investigation team interviewed nearly three dozen former employees, including three that appear on camera. Uh, And there was an internal document that they got that shows the copywriters are subject to strict quotas. And that that therefore could mean that there are fakes getting on the site because not everybody. It's a tough model to scale to have all the really have great authenticators.
4: Oh, gosh. All right. First of all, let me talk about your documents. They were two years old. They're not even relevant. All right. But secondarily, let's address your point. We use a combination of data technology and humans to drive the authentication right. process. And it is hard. There's no doubt it about it. I mean, it you admitted in
1: your statement it it that hard. it's hard to get every, root every fake out, and the people who make fakes are pretty good at it.
4: They are pretty good, which is why we keep iterating our process. So what we did even in August of this year doesn't look like what we do now. Okay. We have to keep iterating, and we get smarter all the time. Okay,
1: well, here's what confused me. I am mean, as someone who used to trade for a living, And this is, it's two sides of every story.
4: 95%
1: of your stock is sold short. That's almost as if there, I could argue that there's a conspiracy. Or I could argue that people must think that you're going out of money run out of money, but you have a very big bank account. You have a lot of money in the bank. You
4: have three hundred and seventy million. Yes, we have a lot of capital and we have a really firm path to profitability. We have more than enough capital to get us to profitability. So look, I that the whole short seller world's like a a weird world to me. It's sort of the anti darkness thing. Understood. That's not where we live. We live in creating a great brand, a great company and, and and making sure that we actually keep fakes off the market. We do it every day. But we also provide an amazing service to our consigners, which keeps them repeating about 80% every single year.
1: Okay, so talk to me. You've got a deal with Stella McCartney. You just announced a deal with Burberry. There's a very real outfit. Some people are telling me, uh, including some very good analysts, that there's a possibility that a uh, Louis Vuitton could be coming, or a Richemont. Is it? Is that a likely, or is that just a pipe dream?
4: Uh, you mean in working with us? Yeah, be a part. Well, we're Let's just, there's some really strong laws going okay. on in Europe that raising the visibility of the environmental impact of fashion, both fast fashion and luxury brands. Right. Those laws are forcing them to reconsider their sustainability uh, pact with the planet, and they have to change. So I would say, yes, I'm in discussions okay. with big brands right now. Okay. And, um, and it really is to get people thinking about the circular economy and getting them reinvesting in, on the planet. Do you
1: make your life hard by uh, giving statements periodically about how everything is real, when we all know that no one is perfect, Sotheby's is not perfect, it's Christie's is not perfect? Do you set yourself up to some degree for a level of criticism that may be justified because
4: it's impossible to be perfect? I agree it's impossible to be perfect, but we strive to be perfect every day. And that the team's intention every single day and their actions, and by the way, and our consumers tell us that we are the safest place to shop on the Internet. And that's what we do every day.
1: Okay, so let's go back to this notion of a copywriter and authenticator. Why is there a difference? I mean, if you're training people, they're either copywriters or authenticators. I- I'm confused about, you know, for instance, there was discussion in, in the piece about how some authenticators uh, for Ch- Chanel versus Fendi, that some-, some products got authenticators, some products got authenticators. And to me, it does seem a bit of a jumble.
4: No, no it's not. Again, it really, the copywriter title is a-, a throwback to when we first started. Okay. And by the way, let me just say, that's going to go away because we're automating copywriting using Machine learning. So by first quarter, the majority of things will be written by a machine. So the title is sort of an old title. Okay. But, and the job is changing pretty dramatically even as we speak with machine learning and AI. Well,
1: explain for our people who may not be as, uh, as savvy as machine learning meaning that they're able to spot fakes, machine learning a via- So,
4: so the, a copywriter, let's talk about their old job. Okay. So the first job was they literally looked at a piece. They um, checked to see if it was fake. Mm -hmm. They wrote what you saw on the website. They physically wrote it through a combination of pull-down menus and writing it. Now, and what we're moving to is things are authenticated. A photo's taken. It extracts all the attributes and uh, pre-forms the product. So they won't even be writing things. They'll be checking it. So their job is changing pretty dramatically. But... I think the key is nothing static, we keep changing, and a combination of machine learning Artificial intelligence and changing our processes, and we change them because a) we're getting smarter, and we know Mm -hmm. it works, and b) we have to change because counterfeiters get smarter. Will
1: you be able to make uh, across the board, like not have it so that some shoes are authenticated by some authenticators and some dresses are by uh, copywriters? I mean, you're just going to go steadily across the board.
4: Well, the copywriter job is changing pretty consistently, but look, when things come in, let me just give this will help. I think this will help put things in perspective. Our GMV, about a third of our revenue that we sell through and get in is fine jewelry and watches. Right. Those go off to gemologists and watchmakers. People right?
1: that we would, if we were Christie's, we would call on those and
4: people. And many of our people came from Christie's and, and Sotheby's and Tiffany's right. and Rolex, so those experts. Some things, because we have a lot of great AI, we know have a high risk for counterfeiting. Right. Those go off to our master authenticators, and they tend to come from the brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're coming from Fendi or Louis Vuitton or Tiffany or Christie's or right. Sotheby's, right? So they do go off. They need an extra level because we own over time that's where the money is. Other things went to another level, a group, the low risk, and they still authenticated. The difference is they won't be writing copy in the future at all.
1: All right. Now, understand uh, our report, I thought, was a good one and that the network stands by it. At the same time, I think there's two sides to every story. You have a very good, fast-growing business. Have you gotten feedback from the piece? Are you worried about trust in real, real?
4: Um, I worry when anyone takes a one-sided shot at the I'll company. Remember again, I know that's your story. My story is I built a bu- business over eight years. We have a net promoter score. Of Of 70, 70, which is
1: Apple 68, so that's a very good number.
4: It's a good number, and we always work every day to keep our trust, every single day. So regardless of what people write about us or what happens to the stock, our business just keeps getting stronger, and the team is focused on both keeping fakes out and providing a great service to the customers.
1: All right, well, I want to thank you for coming on. I think that this is the new frontier of, of, uh, of retail, because people don't want their stuff to go to a landfill. And there's lots of good right. stuff that is worth a great deal. That we don't want to do that either. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. That is Julie Wainwright. She's the founder, chairperson, and CEO of the Real Real. It's an eighteen-dollar stock. It was at thirty at one point. Down to twelve. It was at twenty-three before the quarter was a good one. Man, money's back there, for the break. Last Friday, when we did that exciting live show from the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, one enterprising cadet, Sam from Iowa, pitched me on Micron, the big commodity semiconductor player that really isn't a commodity anymore. Sam did a great job of outlining the bull thesis. Micron's two key products, DRAMs and Flash chips, they seem likely to bottom next year. Maybe DRAM is actually bottoming a little bit slower than, than uh, Flash, but the stock's extremely low valuation makes it too cheap to ignore. Darn things selling for less than nine times next year's earnings, estimates. I was impressed. But Micron, we know, while Trader, when the company reported at the end of September, they delivered some stellar results. Management's guidance for the next quarter, the one we're currently in, was viewed as tepid by some. Stock did get hurt from 48 down to 43, bottom to 42. Since then, working its way back up in a powerful semiconductor rally, which is making investors wonder if the sell off might have been a mistake, me being one of them. So could Micron have more upside? Oh, wow. Let's dig deeper with Sanjay Marotra. He is the president and CEO of Micron Technology. Find out more about his company's doing where it's headed. Sanjay, welcome back. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you here. These are exciting times for Micron, a company i follow followed for 30 years. And it looks like to me, by the measurements that I follow, whether it be free cash flow orders, where we are in the cycle, this is a new Micron. It's one that can sustain any downturn and still be strong.
3: That's absolutely our goal. I mean, we are extremely focused on technology acceleration, new product introductions, and... Uh, accelerating our cost competitiveness in the marketplace as well. You're absolutely right. This is about New Micron. Very different. When you look at our fiscal year 2019, with such steep price declines right. in the industry, we produced actually the second best year in the 40-year history of the company. Second best year for free cash flow as well and profits of the company. When
1: you came on our show and you announced that gigantic buyback, I think a lot of people felt, except for a couple of us who were students of your work, that the buyback wasn't real. You were in there over time, it turns out, in terms of the amount of stock you retired?
3: So during fiscal year 2019, yes, we did buy back $2.7 um, billion of our stocks. Uh, we had free cash flow of $4.1 billion, so 65% of our Free cash flow went toward the buybacks. Of course, in fiscal fourth quarter, our free cash flow was lowered right. because of you know, the conditions in the marketplace right. with respect to the pricing, as well as us wanting to make sure that we continue to invest for the long term right. in terms of capex, clean room expansions, et cetera. But that season,
1: when I looked at the following PCs, whether I speak to uh, Dion Weisler, who's my friend, he's now retired, uh, when I look at data center, if I speak to Lisa Sue. When I look at cell phone, when I speak with Skyworks, I thought the number wasn't nearly as bad tonight as people think. I talk to Corvo and Qualcomm. I look at 5G and listen and read to your own uh, Sumit Sandana. I see every
3: one of those businesses turning up big in in, uh, 2020. Absolutely. The calendar first quarter of 2020. We tend to experience seasonality in the first quarter. So, yes, I mean, you know, that quarter demand could be somewhat impacted. We have talked about, you know, China, perhaps some customers building some inventory in China. You know, exactly how that plays out, given the trade uncertainties, we have to see. And, you know, we have had certain shortages on our end as well in terms of supply side. But then you've also said that you have
1: the other side, too. Exactly. So so now
3: let's go look at the other side. When we go past calendar first quarter and we really look at the demand trends in the marketplace, 5G, like you said, you know, 2020, about 200 million plus smartphones with 5G will be sold. And 5G phones, with the immersive experience they provide, you know, it needs more DRAM memory in it. Mobile World Congress phones were announced with 12 gigabyte of DRAM, one terabyte of flash. So the trends, not just 5G, but certainly cloud, data center, AI applications, IoT, all point to increasing need for memory and storage.
1: I need you to put in context what you just said, though, Sanjay. Uh, gigabyte, this is, you used to be four gigabyte. You're talking about then it was eight. Now you're talking about 12 gigabyte. That's a dramatic amount of intellectual property of Micron,
3: much more than a lot of, of the... Even the bulls think. So memory has absolutely become essential in this data economy, right? And you cannot do without more memory because now compute has got to a point... Communications with 5G have got to a point right. with low latency. IoT is providing a lot more data opportunities. So ins- data insights have to be drawn from that data. And where does that data live? It lives in the products that My- Micron makes. So yes, average capacities of DRAM mm-hmm. content in smartphones you know, continues to increase by approximately 25% on a year-over-year basis. When you look at 2018, uh, 2019 being about 4 gigabyte per right. smartphone on an average, 2020 expected to be about 5 gigabyte right. on an average per smartphone. But same story applies in the data center as well. Okay, if, but
1: I don't want to get, you, look, I think that someone is watching the show will say, Jim, you're very excited about 2020, but let's face it, we still have to deal with DRAM pricing, which is still going down. We have to do with NAND that may be good, and that you have to ask Sanjay, look, how can you really be so sure of DRAM prices, which is still, by the way, the majority of of, of what you make, are still going lower? Why should we have any conviction to own the stock of Micron?
3: So you're absolutely right that, you know, DRAM is continuing to be a competitive marketplace. And I talked about, we provided guidance for our fiscal Q1 and I provided you some color on calendar Q1 dynamic as well. But when I look beyond that, and that's what I think, you know, investors have to look at that the long-term opportunity in our markets, really in my 40-year history, this is the best time ever for memory and storage. Long term demand trends are absolutely secular in nature and Micron in particular is a very different Micron in terms of how we are focused on ROI on our investments and driving technology and product portfolio expansion meeting the customer's requirements. So we are different, Micron, than ever in the past. That's the line I like. More of a product company than
1: we have ever been.
3: Absolutely. And and not just about about a product company, now talking about product leadership company. At Micron Insight on October 24th, we announced 3D CrossPoint products, right. world's fastest solid-state drive using 3D CrossPoint. Yes, early days of 3D CrossPoint. will take you know right. some time for opportunity to build up, but it points to our focus on absolute leadership in our markets. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I,
1: it's a privilege to have you on the show. You are the, probably the most important person describing the semiconductor industry today. That is Sanjay Marotri, the president and CEO of Micron. Symbols MU. You know, I've liked the stock very much because. It's not the same old micron that I traded in the 90s, where I was always worried every minute that we owned it. Mad money's back after the break. Thank you, Jim. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. Of- <laughs> and then the lighting rounds is over. Are you ready? It's time the lightning round. It's time for the lightning round. It's time the lightning of- Andrew in South Carolina. Andrew! Hey, Professor Kramer, I got a South Carolinian Babuya for you, buddy. Well, that's fantastic, Booyah. Frankly, I like—I happen to like your barbecue down there. What's up? Yes, sir. I was just wondering about a stock that you covered, the Cloud King set. To go with S-M-A-R. Yeah, you know... It's just another. I mean, like, you know, we. I've been doing the work on this piece for a while about all the too many cloud-based companies. That comes under the too many cloud-based companies. I'm sorry, I have to put it there. Let's go to Marty in Colorado. Marty, a big Boulder, Colorado. Booyah to you, Jim. Hey, uh, my, sure. uh, my sister-in-law and her husband. booyah to you in Boulder. What's up?
2: Nice, great show at the Air Force Academy in College Springs. My very talented friend, Price, was a jib cameraman at your show, and I recently helped him migrate from some rapidly performing funds into individual stocks. Okay. His heaviest, weighted stock is Kirkland Lake
1: Gold. Well, that's Kirkland an odd Lake one gold. because I do prefer a Nico Eagle, okay, uh, or I prefer a Barrick. But you know what? Kirkland is a good company. I'm not going to rule that out, and I do like gold. I've never hidden that. Let's go to Vincent in Tennessee. Vincent! Jim, how's it going? Not bad, Vincent. How about you? It's doing well. Um, My question for you is, um, what is your opinion of the Israeli-based company in mode? You know, sometimes I think it could be like Novacure, uh, speculative stock. Uh, But I want to make it very, very clear. If you're thinking about buying it, it is real speculative, and it has had a gigantic run, and you're not early to that one. Let's go to Barbara in Texas. Barbara! Hey, Jim. Happy Thanksgiving. Coming up to you and family. Oh, well, thank your, you. And the same. Everybody used to what is one. your take
4: on Arista Network's...
1: And- that last quarter was bad. I didn't really understand it. I know, I know this is going to sound like I'm punting, but I very much actually, after hearing about one big data center contract that didn't seem to come through, I need to speak to... Uh, I need to speak to management. And you speak to Jay Shree, you'll go out. And Jay Shree, you will get a fair hearing so I can understand what really was happening here. Uh, hey, we're not done. Let's go to Mark in Wisconsin. Mark! Jim, thanks for taking my call. My, my stock is Amcor Technology. You know what I thought of it when... It the got the bid today, the first thing I thought was, like, how many more could there be? Maybe there could be Amcor. Then I hit it up. It's, like, moved a lot. But you know what? It's not an expensive stock relative to its history, but it has moved too much, too. I've got a lot of data dogs out there, meaning stocks that have moved too much, including data dogs. And that plays the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
0: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Last night, we learned that Google, that Google's playing God, and not a benevolent God, with Project Nightingale. They plan to learn all about your medical history without your knowledge, your permission, or any of the kinds of safeguards that I think you and I would like. Why would Google do this in secret? Why would Ascension, an excellent chain of 2,600 Catholic medical facilities, even give them the data? Did anyone at Alphabet consider how nefarious this all sounds, even if it isn't? For a company that's already under the microscope with the regulators going after them for any trust issues, you think they'd be more worried about public opinion. And that's the problem with the darn fang stocks. It just keeps happening. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. Uh, well, you know, now Alphabet. They all seem to be plagued by such headline risk, and much of it, frankly, is self-inflicted. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get Apple to partner up with Cerner, an electronic medical records company that already has permission to handle your data. I think Apple doesn't really want to do that. Why? Because they think it's not totally above board. I mean, what Google's doing with Project Nightingale is so much worse. Of course, even if Apple has the right attitude, they clearly didn't realize they were wandering into a minefield with the new credit card, which is now being accused of discriminating against women, even though they don't, you don't know, they don't know if you're a woman or not. Married couples who file their joint, uh, taxes jointly are being offered vastly different credit limits in cases. As far as I'm concerned, the credit card industry has been devoid of best practices from almost the beginning. And that means you need to default to the cleanest player of the group. Maybe you default to J.P. Morgan. Whatever J.P. Morgan does with his credit card, Apple should do too. Stop making it so that you're reinventing the wheel. Granted, it's Goldman Sachs that's actually doing this stuff, but Apple's the one who gave him the business. Anything Goldman does, does anything they do wrong blows back on Apple. Now, I think they'll opt for maximum transparency, but who knows what the next problems will be? More headline risk? Credit cards? A tough industry with different mores? What else? Yesterday Facebook said it's going to start hiding the number of likes on Instagram because they don't want to hurt the mental health of young people. Well, there are two ways to look at this. You could say, bravo Facebook for taking action. that might dent their numbers. Or you could say, wait a second, I didn't know that Instagram was hurting the mental health of teenagers. I feel like they're just Given some ambulance chasing lawyers ammo, that's David. Another mindfail. There was an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal. It was headed Amazon's heavy recruitment of Chinese sellers puts consumers at risk. Now, I read this story, and for the life of me, I have no idea what the heck they're talking about. But it just smacks of another seemingly dubious thing that Walmart isn't doing or Target or Costco. And again, it's secretive. It never ends with these guys. One of the consequences is so simple. We simply can't pay as much for these big tech stocks as we used to. Don't they see that? Don't the CEOs see that? Don't the board of directors see that? Because the long knives are all out for them because of all these things I just mentioned. All right, so maybe Netflix isn't involved with uh, regular scrutiny, scrutiny, but uh, Disney Plus launching today is facing some serious new competition. Is there anything that can be done here? Yes. And that's what's so frustrating. Facebook and Apple, Alphabet and Amazon and Apple need to be more like a company that's already been through the ringer. They need to be a little more like Microsoft. Develop businesses that aren't secretive. Be transparent in everything you do. Most importantly, they need to use the old adage I was taught by my lawyers 35 years ago. And what they drummed into my head, they'd always say, so how would that look on the front page of the New York Times? Well, how about all those stories? That you say, How would they look on the front page of the New York Times? The answer is bad, suboptimal, So don't do it. These stories all look terrible, which brings me to the real reason why the fang names always seem to be in hot water. These companies are run by brilliant people who seem to have forgotten how ordinary Americans look at the world. That's why they keep putting themselves in positions where politicians and journalists can tear them to shreds. I think they need to get some good in-house counsel that they're actually willing to listen to. They need outside lawyers who will stand up for themselves and try to get these people to realize what the truth looks like. And just stop generating horrible publicity. In short, these Silicon Valley executives need to stop thinking so much like the Stanford computer scientists they often are and start using a little more common sense and seek more truth. When Congress and the FTC and the Justice Department are already gunning for you, doing anything else that puts a target on your back is probably pretty unwise, don't you think? Yet their rapaciousness keeps getting the best of them. And long term, that's not good for the shareholders or, frankly, themselves. Stick with Kramer. Glass half empty, glass half full, glass full. Hey, how about just putting me in the glass half full camp? I think the full camp is a little too aggressive, especially after how far we have come. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow!